what is happening in the First World War is a full-blown revolution in military affairs. And so they're playing catch-up to understand, introduce, and take advantage of new technology. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host today and I have a treat for you. Now, Field Marshal Haig has formulated a brilliant new tactical plan to ensure final victory in the field. Ah, well this brilliant plan involve us climbing out of our trenches and walking very slowly towards the enemy, sir. <laughs> How could you possibly know that, Blackadder? It's classified information. <laughs> it's the same plan that we used last time. And the 17 times before that. Yes, it's World War I, and I'm going to explode the myth that you heard from General Melchert and Blackadder there, which was of the incompetence and pointless slaughter on the Western Front during the First World War. I'll be doing this, well I say I, it's actually going to be Gary Sheffield doing this. And he's the author of Forgotten Victory, the First World War Myths and Realities. In this book, which was an instant classic when published more than 20 years ago, the Blackadder myth was dismantled. Now, I'm a huge fan of Blackadder, so this isn't an attack on the TV show, but combined with war poetry, the 1960s film Oh, What a Lovely War, and some very questionable books, a view had developed that the First World War was a waste of an entire generation of young men. I myself was seduced by this and viewed the generals, in particular Field Marshal Haig, as somehow responsible for the chaos and the slaughter. Two of my father's uncles were killed in the conflict, one on the Somme and the other at Arras in 1916 and 1917 respectively. Desmond Webb Carter grew up in Ireland and joined the army in 1914, passing out first in the officer training course at Woolwich. He was then sent to the front but was killed at the Battle of the Somme at the age of only 19. His elder brother, Ion Carter, also joined the army that same year. Ion was an altogether a different character, more artistic. He was bad with money though, and as an officer he bounced a cheque. Now this might cause some mild embarrassment now, but in 1914 it was no laughing matter, particularly since his father was a senior army officer. He was sacked from the army, disowned by his family, cut off. Ion changed his name to Christopher Valentine and rejoined the army, but this time from the ranks. He won the military medal for gallantry and rose to the rank of sergeant. He was killed at the Battle of Arras in 1917. His body was never found. The thought that both these young men, as well as my maternal grandfather who also served, and was seriously wounded, sacrificed their bodies and their futures for nothing is not a nice thought. Gary Sheffield puts those losses into perspective. In our chat today we look at the origins of the war, the strategy of the British, what the army was like at the time, we look at Douglas Haig and some of the other generals, and I think you'll come away with a different view of the war. I certainly did after reading Gary's great book. As ever, please do subscribe to the pod and rate or review if you can. I've got plenty more great history to come, including an interview with American filmmaker and novelist John Sayles on 18th century Scotland, England and America, and we'll also talk a bit of Hollywood. In the meantime, I'm going to hand you over to me talking with Gary Sheffield. Gary Sheffield, welcome to uh, the podcast. It's a real, real pleasure and honour to have you on. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Well, we're talking all about uh, your book, um, Forgotten Victory, uh, Myths and Realities of the First World War, uh, which was a book of the month, um, uh, Aspects of History book of the month, a while ago now when I uh, I was just explaining, um, dear listeners, to Gary that we're getting him on now, um, only now that I have the podcast up and running. So um, this book is a, a fantastic book. I've been reading it again um, before I, I um, before I um, speaking to you now, Gary. Um, and it's so it's it's just so wonderful. To, it takes you all the way through the First World War. It describes all all the things you kind of thought you knew, Gary lays out these um arguments um in a very clear way and so today i wanted to go through 
um, a few things that that I want to talk about um, from the book um, that I think will be interesting to the listeners. And Gary is the man to speak to about. Well, well, well thank you. I mean, uh, very kind of you to say that about the book, which is now, gosh, 22 years old. Um, for me, it really was a breakthrough book because uh, I was being treated by my publisher at the time, Headline, as, as a brand new author. In fact, I think I already had about nine books published by that stage. But of course, they were all academic books. But this is the first time I actually had a book which appeared in high street shops. And so it really did uh, break through a glass ceiling for me. And and it was a, a book that you'd wanted to write because, and uh, I think largely thanks to this book, uh, the prevailing wind has changed about our view of the First World War. But I think you wanted to write the book um, because I think we had a view of the First World War that it, that I guess it's um, easily summed up in one word, Blackadder, That's right, um, yes. <laughs> which everyone knows and loves. Um, so there's no criticism of, of the TV show for entertainment reasons, but for historical reasons, uh, it's slightly more problematic. Um, but well, that, well, that, well, that, 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 That's right. I'm I, I actually a great fan of Blackadder. In fact, I even, uh, I've even done a double header uh, evenings entertainment with John Lloyd, the producer, in which he talked about uh, the, the television, and I talked about the history, and, and I'm a huge fan of Blackadder, but it's not a documentary. Well, it's it is. It is. It is absolutely brilliant, and um, and but I think it does reflect the view, um, certainly in the '90s, and I think it goes back to the '60s, which you explain in your book, that the Great War, the First World War, World War One, is viewed as a as a war that was it was almost a waste of life and um, you know, a terrible tragedy and your book completely um, breaks apart that, that, that argument. Well, 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 thank you. I I mean, I mean, you're, you're right about its origins because I'm not the only person to have done this by any means. People like Gordon Corrigan, Brian Bond, all sorts of people were making um, much the same points and actually writing books around around the same time. So my one is just one, my my book is just just one one of many. Um, but it came down to the fact that going going back as an undergraduate at the University of Leeds in the early nineteen eighties, I sort of pitched up with all the classic Blackadder. Oh, well, Blackadder wasn't around there, but oh, oh, what a lovely war! You know, lines are by donkeys ideas. I in my final year special subject on written the First World War with a wonderful historian, Hugh Cecil, who's sadly died a couple of years ago. Um, and he opened my eyes to there their were different views. And going on from that to do some postgraduate work, I became increasingly convinced that the, the lines led by Donkey's approach was very, very stale. It's very narrow and, and basically largely wasn't true. And I sat in academic seminar after academic seminar in the 80s and 90s with people complaining about this and how difficult it was to shift external opinion I wonder I thought I do something about it and I must say there was an ulterior motive I also had decided by that point in my career I was about 38 39 I wanted to move on to a different stage I had been in, in academia at Sandhurst for some time uh, which I really enjoyed but actually I wanted to move up to the next level and coincidentally I changed my job becoming uh, uh, the in effect one of the senior historians at, at, at the staff college at the same time as my book came out and the two things actually propelled me um, from decent academic obscurity into something slightly less obscure well <laughs> but, yeah you know, it, it, it made, made, made my name in, 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 in a sense um, and what I found the easiest thing to do really was to sort of look at the myths and then just subject them to a bit of logic common sense and evidence and time after time I found that the myths at best only had a grain of truth about them and in some cases were completely wrong and in doing so this of course is the run-up to to writing Forgotten Victory I became convinced there was a story which really had not been told now these days anybody who puts the word like forgotten or untold in a book title gets a bit of a kicking on Twitter and deservedly so but I, in, in my defense I'll say this was not my original title for the book uh, but also I think actually it's justifiable in that in the early 2000s, which is what we're talking about, people really had forgotten that Britain and its allies won a victory in 1918. Um, 
I remember someone at a seminar um, reporting that someone on, on a Radio 4 programme had said, you know, bemoaning the, 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 the state of Britain. This is back in the 90s. And that's why we lost the First World War. Well, of course we didn't. And so really forgotten victory comes from this desire for me just to write historical wrong. And I guess the final thing I'll say about this is that when I was doing my postgrad work back in the 80s and 90s, I came into contact with a lot of the veterans of the war who had to live with the notion that somehow all that they had been through, all their sufferings, all their sacrifice had been for nothing. And of course, their children, grandchildren were also living without those ideas. And it was simply untrue. Whatever else you might say about the First World War, it was not a war that was fought for nothing. So I hope to be putting right what I just quite regarded, still do, as a historical injustice. Well, that, that's a very powerful um, argument, um, I think, that the war was not a, was not a waste. I mean, my, I, I was talking to an author the other day because I have two great uncles who were killed in the war. And the idea that they were killed just, you know, as you say, for, for nothing, it, it, it's, it doesn't bear thinking about. Um, so let's look, let's get cracking. I've got some questions. Um, now, the first one I want to ask, and it is almost, uh, it is slightly influenced from a line in Blackadder as well. Uh, it's the origins of the First World War. Uh, now, this is a big question, so I don't, you know, I don't really want to um, go um, too far off track. But the origins of the First World War, there is a there is there are people who have a view that we shouldn't have gone in. Mm. Um, there is a line in Black Haddock that says it. Uh, the reason why the war started was it was too much effort not to have a war. And that's actually it's I find that quite an interesting, um, interesting line, because I think there is a grain of truth in it, in that. The, all these big powers, Austro-Hungary, Germany, uh, Russia, France and Britain, had been s all making alliances left, right and centre to avoid a, a war. And it was getting quite complicated. Well, that, that's right. I, I, you know, I, I could do a complete three hour podcast on origins of the First World War, but I won't. Uh, I mean, my take on it, and I actually re revisited my attitudes on the origins of the war in 2014 when the the centenary kicks off because suddenly ideas which i thought had been discredited you know many many years before came back into vogue the idea that the war essentially no one was at fault well actually having done a, a lot of digging into this and along with many other people who the vast majority of people studied the origins of the first world say actually there are true two two driving forces which bring about the war austria hungary which causes the local war by its, by its decision to, to, to attack Serbia as a result of the assassination of the Austri Austri um, Austrian Archduke in, uh, in 1914. And Germany, which backs Austria in the full knowledge what is likely to result, as in Russia comes into war on the side of Serbia and Russia's ally to France and all the rest of it. And in both cases, and the evidence for me is absolutely clear, you have people who basically took a decision to go to war, you know, to, and, and, and damn the consequences. No one in 1914 expected to end up with the war that they got, but in Berlin and Vienna, there was a, willing, a willingness to risk whatever happened. And if you look at the, the Russians, who, you know, not everybody's flavour of the month at the moment, it must be said, but I do think that they are largely guiltless of causing war in 1914. Uh, um, as in they didn't initiate it. Uh, France and absolutely Britain, they are reacting to events which are triggered by Germany, Austria, Hungary. Now, for me, the biggest re revelation, which actually I, 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 I came across this actually after I read Forgotten Victory, is that in 1914, there is a real attempt by Britain to um, broker a deal which will actually bring peace to, to the Balkans as it happened in 2013, sorry, 1913 and 1912 during the two Balkan Wars, the difference is in 1914, this time, the Germans who had previously been with, uh, restraining the Austrians gave them the go ahead. And the British, specifically the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, didn't realise that until it's too late. So I'm afraid I have no time at all for this idea that everyone was to blame or no one was to blame. Actually, the burden of guilt 
responsibility, I should say, lays very firmly with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Britain could have stayed out. That's absolutely true. In many ways, it, they almost Britain almost did. In that case, I think that Britain would have faced uh, a friendless Europe with Russia and France defeated, and Britain and the British Empire, which we don't think about the British Empire now, but he did at the time, would have been at an absolute critical disadvantage. In reality, it's difficult to think of any way that Britain could have stayed out in 1914 and had any hope of uh, keeping a degree of security in Europe and overseas. Now, I have heard an argument that, well, we stayed out um, for the Franco-Prussian War 50 odd years before. Why, why did we stay out then? If we, if we went in in 1914, why didn't we go in? in... Because um, that great and good man, Otto von Bismarck, which I don't think, uh, Bismarck was a solid realist. He had a very, very limited aim in the Franco-Prussian War, which was to defeat, defeat the French and unite Germany under the Prussian crown, which of course is, is actually what happened. He was very careful to keep, um, to mend his fences with Britain. So crucial in 1914, bringing Britain into war was the German invasion of Belgium, which Britain uh, guaranteed under the Treaty of 1839. Uh, there was never any chance that Prussia was going to invade Belgium in 1870, um, apart from anything else, because Bismarck had no um, intention of doing so. What Bismarck did uh, remarkably is to shatter the existing balance of power, but then recreate a new one and put Germany centrally within it. And for me, um, Bismarck isn't exactly a hero, but he is the man who actually having achieved his ambitions, kept Germany firmly within the new system. The Kaiser, who is, you know, I'm screw loose basically, um, and certainly, you know, when, when he dispenses with Bismarck's services, you have an incredibly erratic leadership at the top of Germany. And that's the point at which Britain becomes worried. It's not until, I would say, the, the period of the, of, the, of the Boer War, so very late 19th, early 20th century, Britain really becomes worried about Germany. So, yeah, if Bismarck had behaved like the Kaiser in 1914, but back in 1870, you could well have brought Britain into the war, but he didn't. And that's the difference between the German leadership in 1870 and the German leadership in 1914. Now, the 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 British um, priority uh, militarily in in 1914, or for for the hundred years before, had been the Royal Navy. Mm. So, so the British Army was quite a small um, army uh, compared compared to its um, uh, well, its its uh, allies and its and its uh, opponents in the First World War, um, and that's. That's often, um, I suppose, that's another um, thing that's probably forgotten that it is it, that it isn't this sort of vast army that ends the war in in, in 1918. Mm. But I wanted to ask um, again: we're we're not quite in the First World War because the British Army of 1914 is almost um, well, it has a, a, a threatened mutiny, and we're close to a civil war in 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 the United Kingdom, so. Is how much, uh, and, and I'm talking about Ireland here. Uh, how much did Ireland and the and the, the Curragh mutiny and the problems uh, within the British Army um, did they affect the leadership of the uh, of the British Expeditionary Force in the early days of the nineteen of nineteen fourteen, um, or is mm. it is it something that can be discarded because Ireland's basically parked? Um, the problem is parked. Right, actually, uh, well, for those who don't know, the the, the Curragh mutiny or current incident is, is, is a technical term uh in uh, in spring of 1914 there's uh, a group of officers at the Curra barracks uh near, near, near dublin who fear that they are going to be uh, sent north into ulster to coerce uh what is now northern ireland into home rule because there's this huge political row going on going on in britain um the uh Britain is uh, the, the Liberal government under Asquith is trying to pass uh, the, the Home rule, rule Bill. It's being fiercely opposed by unionists in Ireland and by the Conservatives. Technically, at that time, they're called the Unionist, Unionist Party in Britain. And it's not really a mutiny because what happens is that the officers, led by um, Hubert Goff, who then goes on to become a, an army commander in the Western Front, of course, 
threatened to resign if they're ordered north. But it is actually a direct challenge to the authority of the government, something that's been very rare in British history, really since the 17th century. In the end, it's diffused and it causes surprisingly little uh, problems in 1914, but it easily could have done. I, I, for life of me, I can't remember who, who wrote it, but there's a, a, a British officer who, looking back on the Curra, uh, says something like, you know, we should, I think the phrase, light candles to a picture of the Kaiser, because he's the man who rescued the British army by opposing, uh, uh, imposing an external th a threat, which brought everybody together at a time of great of great problems. If the Curra mutiny, or, or, or more, more broadly, the Irish problem had gone on, it is possible there could have been a real split in the British army. Of course, in, in, and, and of course, you're actually right to say that Ireland's on the verge of civil war in 1914. We now know that actually the civil war is just delayed. It's delayed until 1918, to, uh, 1919 to 1921, 22, rather than um, dispensed with altogether. But yeah, Ireland is, is, is a very, very poisonous presence in British politics in 1914. And it frankly could have done much more damage to the British army than it did. It's quite surprising it didn't do more. It's, 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 it's amazing um, reading some of it. The politicians are sort of so relieved by the First World War um, in the early days um, because, yes, we've avoided this island problem, but that, obviously that feeling doesn't last. Um, so I wanted to, uh, and I've asked you this question um, in a written format, but I'm I'm really interested in this, and this is this gets to the crux of the of, of, of I guess that feeds the myth is that it's the casualties, the 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 loss, uh, and and the losses are from the, the beginning of the war. Huge numbers of soldiers are killed in the fighting for technical uh, sort of technological reasons, probably primarily, but um, I I I find it difficult to see particularly for generals who are not used to dealing with these numbers of casualties the generals are seeing these butchers bills come come across their desks um or or they're seeing it in person and and yet they don't seem to change at any it, it, certainly to to my uh to my view my as a layperson they don't seem to change their tactics or the strategy and so these numbers just continue to be killed in vast numbers, in, in, in huge, huge numbers. Is, is that something that we can criticise them for? OK, I mean, take, take the first point about numbers. Um, you're right that the, the losses, the, the, the killed, wounded, missing, other words, people were blown up so badly they never found the bodies, um, are at a level which is unprecedented in British military history. The Second World War, which lasts for two or three years longer, actually has lower overall casualties, although there are reasons for that which I'll come back to. Um, and everybody is shocked by this in 1914, the British, the French, the Germans. To put British losses into perspective, I should actually say that the worst single day in terms of killed for the British in the First War is the 1st of July, 1916, the first day on the Somme. That's not nearly as large as the French's largest loss, uh, which occurs in uh, August, I can't remember, it August or September 1914, which is 27,000 dead. So actually in, in, in global terms, there is nothing unusual about the size of the British butcher's bill. I should also say, um, and this is often the point that's often missed, that when you look at the overall numbers of, of people who died in the First World War, in round numbers, it's given as one million British Empire dead. So that's not just British, it's, it's, it's Canadians, Indians, Australians, all the rest of them. Uh, a significant number of those actually do not die on the Western Front. They die in the so-called sideshows like Palestine, Mesopotamia, and so on. And a significant number of those actually die of disease. And that is not the case on the Western Front. Because on the Western Front, the weapons, the weapons um, systems are, are, are lethal, but actually medical care and so on is actually very good. In Eastern theatres, um, 
the weapons don't tend to be quite lethal in the sense there aren't as many of them and the and the, the amount of shelling isn't as great rest of it but actually medical um, uh, problems are, are, are rife and so your chance for example of being killed or wounded at Gallipoli by an enemy shell or bullet is relatively low your chance of dying from some horrible disease like dysentery or, or, or jaundice or something like that is actually very high and so all of this needs to be taken into account okay now the point about callousness which is really what you're getting down to were the officers of the first world war callous i suppose to some degree they were although if you look at any officer at any point of time who act has to deal with sizable casualties um it's something you just learn to cope with because if, if you break down if you mentally break down you cannot go on um because you're seeing your men being killed and wounded left right and center you are no good and there are examples of people in wars i can think of who ha have actually been uh, moved out of the way for that reason. Did that make them callous? I, I really don't think it did. Uh, I mean, there was a, a toleration of human misery and death a hundred years ago, which we do not have today. That's 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 quite that's quite short. That's quite quite um, quite certain. Does that make them all callous? I, I'm not sure it does. Even I mean, Douglas Haig, we may as well avoid talking about so far. He's the man who has the reputation of the most callous one of the lot. And having edited his letters and diaries, and I've written his biography and various other bits and pieces, clear to me he actually did understand that suffering was going on, but he was able to cope with it. Um, he was not a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. In that, he goes along with pretty well every other successful commander in history. So there's a willingness to accept casualties, which we wouldn't have today. I'm not sure that makes them makes them um, callous. Change. Well, I actually disagree with you because I think there is a good deal of change from the very beginning as people adapt their tactics and their strategies to the new conditions. But there is only so much that people can actually do. Um, this isn't an excuse for heavy casualties on the British side, but I think you need to understand the context. Throughout the First World War, the British uh, are the junior partners on the Western Front. The French are the senior partners. In other words, there's more French soldiers in the field and you're playing on, they're playing at home, as it were. Um, and so the British almost never actually have a free hand to do whatever they like. So in July 1914, if Haig had his own way, he would not have been attacking on the Somme. He would have been attacking up round Ypres, where he thought there were more uh, attainable objectives. I think probably he was right. Why was he attacking on the Somme? Because the French, who were effectively the, the French commander, who wasn't technically the Allied commander-in-chief, but that's what he was in effect, uh, Marshal Joff said, this is where we will be attacking. Why did Haig attack at Arras in the spring of 1917? Because the French had insisted he did so as part of an operation to prepare for a big French attack. And, 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 and. Now that's not an excuse, but it's just to say that, that the British generals did have their hands tied to some degree. And the final point is, if you look at the way that warfare has been conducted in 1918, at the end of the war, compared to 1914, there has been a full-blown revolution. And so tactics are less clumsy, um, they're more successful. That's not to say that the butcher's bills are any lower, they're not, because that's the nature of the war they're fighting, but they're, they're achieving more um, for the casualties that they lose. And, and the tactics that you refer to, uh, in my mind's eye, and probably in a lot of people's eyes, it's, it's battalion upon a battalion climbing over a trench and walking very slowly into machine gun fire. Yeah. And that seems to happen for four years, and then somehow we win. But that's, <laughs> that, that's obviously uh, a, a gross simpl simplification. At what point do we stop getting out of trenches and walking very slowly towards machine gun fire? Well, that image really comes from the first day on the Somme. And specifically, it comes from the Battle of the Somme film, because there's a famous clip which everybody has seen once, because it's been used endlessly on the television, even if you haven't seen the same film, in which you see people picking over their way over barbed wire, uh, a man is, is, is shot and he falls and, 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 and rolls over. Uh, that's that the, the film it's taken from, the Battle of Somme film, actually is almost entirely genuine, apart from that sequence. 
which is filmed at uh, a trench mortar school a few weeks before the battle begins. And I, I've, I've shown this clip to endless students over the years. I said, if you, if you, if you look at the man who, who, who is hit and falls over, watch him very carefully, because he, he actually falls down, he rolls over, he crosses his legs, he looks at the camera, does pretty well everything apart from go, hello, mum. And uh, it's, 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 it's a bit of, uh, 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 um, um, forward is the wrong word. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's faked. Why is it faked? Because actually the technology of the time is not capable of filming uh, an advance. Because if you, because if you were standing up, basically uh, uh, doing your camera, I'm doing a mime, which of course is completely useless because no one can actually see it on the podcast. Um, you know, you would be standing up, exposing your body to full view, and you would be shot. So it's a, the genuine film, which is there throughout the. Uh, the film is the shot which is actually filmed at, at ground level. So basically, you're in a trench looking up, or you're behind the lines because you know it's all right to be filming a you know, a 9.2 inch howitzer firing because it's miles miles behind behind the lines. Okay, but let's just get back to it. Um, that uh, attack uh, that's shown on on the Somme is actually on Somme film is actually accurate for the first of July 1916. For some other battles, it's not accurate for all other parts of the war. When the war begins, the regular army, pre-war professional soldiers, they carry out fire and movement tactics. So basically small groups of men who would go forward in a rush, using cover and all the rest of it. Long story short, uh, when the army becomes massively expanded by bringing in civilians uh, who have been, I don't know, dustmen or newspaper salesmen or cooks or secondhand car salesmen, what have you, uh, before the war, it's thought that these tactics are too complicated for these citizen soldiers to master. And so they go back to some very, very simple ones, basically advancing in long lines or waves. This is shown to be a mistake. And actually within a few weeks of uh, the Somme, you find much more sophisticated tactics being used. And by the end of the Somme, and these are the tactics which are really used with variations uh, to right to the end of the war, tactics have changed so dramatically so that the, um, the infantry platoon of about 60 men, I guess, at full strength, um, has changed from basically being four sections of men with rifle, rifle and bayonet, being in the Somme, to being one rifle, rifle and bayonet section, one section armed with hand grenades, bombs as they called them, one section armed with, uh, uh, with rifle grenades, so basically an attachment goes on the, on, the, on the top of the rifle, means you can fire a grenade uh, beyond throwing distance, and crucially, one section is armed with Lewis guns, which are light machine guns. Technically, it's an automatic rifle. And so tactics by 1970, 1918, basically you get the Lewis guns to put down fire, to suppress the enemy, to make them get their head down. And then you use your, use your riflemen and your bombers to work around the flanks of a, of a pillbox or a trench. Uh, you suppress them with fire, and then you rush them with the riflemen. Now, these are modern tactics. I mean, I, you know, um, when I started my career back in the 80s, I was teaching uh, young officers at Sandhurst and I would tell them this. I said, well, this is what we do today. Yeah. And this is where it started. So we see actually a, a major growth in tactics uh, from 1914 to 1918 with this sort of backward step in 1916 for very obvious reasons. By the end, you've got these tactics I've mentioned, plus you've got tanks, you have got low flying aircraft, you've got chemical weapons, you name it. You've got the entire modern um, battlefield in embryo. I, I, I've said this to, to zillions of students over the years, but if Napoleon had come back from Valhalla or wherever he is in 1914, broadly he would have recognised the sort of war, war being fought, the tactics, the weapons, all the rest of it. He delayed his return until 1918, not a chance. Warfare had changed dramatically and fundamentally. Uh, and so, you know, warfare in 1914 looked back to Napoleon, 1918 is looking forward to Blitzkrieg and to war of the modern age. So well, you've mentioned Haig, so we need to, we need to sp speak a little bit more about him. Now, his nickname, I don't know when this the nickname comes in of B Butcher Haig. It's, uh, it's post-war. It certainly wasn't a contemporary one. Yeah, I wanted to know, uh, first of all, I wanted to know what the view of the men was of Haig, who comes in, um, oh, you'll, you'll know better than me, is it about 1915 he comes in? Uh, he, he becomes uh, the commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force in December 1915. He arrived in France in August 1914 as the commander of First Army, First Corps in First Army. 
Um, so what were the what was the view of uh, of the army as a whole? Uh, I, I mean, I was, I'm assuming it, it changed, but um, they didn't view him as as this sort of, uh, you know, this callous figure. Absolutely not. I mean, depends on who you're talking about. But uh, at the very top of the army, there are a few sceptics, but most people saw him as the cunning uh, as the coming man and the uh, the obvious successor to Sir John French, who um, metaphorically falls under a bus. Basically, he's 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 exhausted all his credit at home and he's sacked at the end of 1915. And when Haig takes over, virtually everybody says, you yeah, know, this is the right man for the job. Um, and generally speaking, he he maintains confidence of most people at the top into 1918. It gets a bit wobbly at the beginning of 1918, but he sees it out. Of course, he ends up as being regarded as being a victor on the Western Front, one of the victors anyway. Um, for ordinary, ordinary men, well, I'm not sure they thought very much of him at all because he was somewhere out there. Um, very interesting, I think, is to compare the senior officers of the Second World War, who for the most part had been junior officers in the First World War, with the First World War um, uh, um, predecessors. Now, Haig, if he got round troops, and he did actually on a fairly regular basis, he would inspect them on parades, they'd be standing there, you know, thumbs down the seams of their trousers and all the rest of it, all very formal. And what evidence there is suggested that people quite like this because they liked a toff. I mean, the vast majority of the army are from the working classes. And hey, look, every inch of soldier, he's got an escort of lancers with lances with pennons flying from his old regiment, the 17th Lancers. They like him. They like a bit of, bit of cav cav cavalry dash. He's got um, a good moustache, hasn't he? He's, he's got a fantastic moustache and he looks the part. And you shouldn't underestimate how looking the part is really important. And, um, and on the whole, they like him. Um, those who actually do comment about him while the war's going on tend to say, oh, expected by Haig today, he had a splendid moustache, not quite, but you know, all the rest of it. Very rarely do you actually get adverse comments while the war's going on. Now, when the war's over, that's another matter. But I suspect that people then are influenced more by what they have read from the likes of Basil Little Hart and having seen anti-war films and things like that, than what they actually believed at the time. So at the time, Haig uh, comes up for, for, for remarkably little criticism. There is some, um, but it's but certainly not widespread. And so he dies, I think, in, in 1928. January 1928, that's right. Um, he was, I think he had a state funeral, didn't he? Um, Did he? If it wasn't, it was the next best thing to one. It right. was a incredibly lavish funeral, yes. So this is, you know, um, a, a, the kind of funeral from a grateful nation. Mm. He, you, would, or you, you could argue, you know, his reputation is is as high as, as, high as it, it got, really, until your biography came out, of course. Um, but um, uh, but, true, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you are you are critical of him in, in some areas yeah, as well, yes, aren't you? Yes. Um, but but from a from his death, because I think Lloyd George then um, is is quite rude about him in yes. his his um, in his book published after uh, after Haig's death, and his reputation really has uh, her, her, just does take a right battering for the next sort of few decades, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I, I'm I mean I think the interesting thing to think about Haig is that in the in 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 the 1920s he becomes actually a much bigger hero than he has been during the war. Now, partly this is because out, out of gratitude, you know, he is seen with Foch as the man who has won the war, but also he's a very hands-on leader of the ex-servicemen in Britain. Uh, so he becomes the president of the British Legion. And I mean, only a minority of ex-soldiers ever belong to the British Legion, but actually, Haig is seeing as, as a man in authority who's going into battle on their behalf. So, so he's he, he, he's incredibly rude about the government and how mean they are about uh, provision of pensions and things like this. And this actually go, goes down extremely well. And um, and so his reputation is, is probably higher when he dies than it is at the end of the First World War, strangely enough. But then uh, several things happen. He, he dies and there is genuine national mourning, you know, um, football matches, uh, there's two minutes silence, all that sort of stuff. Um, um, when the Queen died last year, I was put in mind, this is a similar, not on the same scale, but it's a similar sort of approach 
1928 for, for, for Hague. But that year, you also saw the publication in English of Eric Maria Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, and um, the first production of R.C. Sheriff's Journeys. And this actually kicks off the great, what's described as the great war books boom, and is very much an anti-war pushback. And um, it's quite shallow. Not everybody shares it by any means. It's really you know, the 1920s equivalent of the chattering classes. But actually, it's, it's very profound and actually attracts a lot of attention. And, and Haig's reputation, which is so high, has further to fall than anybody else's. And so over the next few years, you find these attacks, not merely on Haig and the British Army, but the whole idea of the, of the war itself. The war is, is seen as being useless, the sort of things we were talking about at the beginning. Uh, and as you, as you rightly say, David Lloyd George publishes his fairly scurrilous memoirs in, I think, 1935 and which he gives Haig both, both barrels. I mean, Haig's safely dead, he can't argue back. And this does an awful lot to um, diminish Haig's reputation. For all that, not everybody buys it. And the First World War and Haig's reputation uh, uh, remain, I think, safe in some areas in 1939. Then of course you have the Second World War. And at the end of it, the First World War is old news, nobody really cares. And in the 50s, you have um, basically a reviving of the Hague bashing and sort of general bashing of the 20s and 30s under new guise. So you get uh, Leon Wolfs in Flanders Fields about Passchendaele coming out in 1957, 1961, I think it's, um, uh, 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 oh, oh, oh gosh, uh, uh, Alan Clark's The Donkeys. And, 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 and all of these books, book, book, books come out. And, and Over the Lovely War, of course, the, the play then the film is based on all of this. And you get Blackadder. And the poetry, the, the war poetry. And the poetry, of course. Of course. And the poetry um, is very much a minority interest until the late 20s and early 30s. It's not really, I mean, arguably, perhaps even after the Second World War, that people like um, Wilfred Owen enter, enter the canon. But in, in the 1930s, the suffering war poet becomes the image of the British soldier of the First World War, which could not be further from the truth. But nonetheless, this is what captures people's imaginations. And this is basically what people are taught at schools in 1950s onwards. And it's only relatively recently, last maybe 15, maybe 20 years, that you start to get some more balanced teaching of the history of the First World War at school. Uh, I wasn't taught the First World War at school, particularly my wife, the only thing that she was taught was a war poet. So she was very surprised when she met me to hear me banging on about there was an alternative view. Well, that's interesting because it, uh, English teachers must be the bane of your life because they are the ones who Some teach. Some of them are. Some of them are. <laughs> but they're the ones who teach the First World War, don't they, through the, through the war um, poetry? It's less true than it used to be, but there's still a great deal of truth in you. To be absolutely fair, I've met lots of English teachers who do make a real attempt to put some historical context into place. Uh, but I've no doubt that there are, there are others who don't. Um, so, so, yeah, it's it's English teachers, arguably, rather than history teachers who have the bigger influence on uh, school children's understanding of the First World War. Do you think at its core, one of the reasons why a lot of these myths have developed um, is because um, you've mentioned this. France was playing at home. Germany were on the, you know, if Germany uh, are pushed back, they're in Germany. Um, Britain is... Britain, its borders are. I don't think there's really any threat of invading Britain during the war. So no, is that is that why we concentrate a little bit more on the British um, loss and and, and uh, you know the, the casualties because because Britain's not actually threatened. Um, I think partly that, though I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, but also because I think it's simple chauvinism. It's uh, you know we are dealing with the Brits we forget what other people's views are. So uh, do the French and the Belgians regard the First World War as a tragedy? Yes, they do. Do they regard it as, as being uh, you know, futile? No, they don't, because their countries were invaded and French and Belgian civilians suffered very, very badly under German occupation. Uh, and certainly one, one thing which I think is a complete red herring is, is people say, well, we are, uh, Imperial Germany wasn't like Nazi Germany. To which my answer is no, it wasn't, but it was bad enough in its own terms. Um, the fact that Hitler was even worse 
is really no excuse for what happened between 14 and 18. Um, the bigger picture, though, which I think we have lost, is that whereas Britain realistically was not threatened by invasion in the First World War, it would have had the, had, would have had the Royal Navy to have suffered a, a, a calamitous defeat, which realistically was never going to happen. The British Empire did appear to be under threat, and that was important because people still thought imperially. And again, I, I've, I've, I've often been to New Zealand and Australia and less than a number of times to Canada. And um, my, my, my sort of, you know, sort of counterparts in Australia, Canada and New Zealand think exactly along the same lines. Lots of ordinary Canadians, New Zealanders and, 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 and Canadians don't, Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders don't. They see them, the, the states in 1914 as being like they are now independent countries with only a loose connection to Britain. That was absolutely not true in 1914, or for that matter, in 1939. They regarded themselves for the most part, with the exception of, I guess, the, the Francophone Canadians and the, uh, uh, the Africana South Africans, as being British in some way, as well as Australian, Canadian, whatever it happens to be. They were loyal to the king, they were loyal to the empire, and they were very, very worried. So one of the arguments sometimes you hear put forward is, well, you know, why Australia wasn't threatened in 1914? Well, actually, there were German colonies close by Australia. And more importantly, uh, Japan was lurking beyond that. Now, in 1914, Japan was Britain's ally, much discussed of the Australians and New Zealanders, it must be said. But the Australians and New Zealanders feared that if Britain was defeated, the shield of the Royal Navy, the thing which de defended Australia and New Zealand would be withdrawn and suddenly there would be these large, open and very vulnerable countries. And so there is a real fear in 1914 that the empire is at threat. We've lost any sight of that today, most people, but it's really important to the people of 1914, not at least those people who live in places like Australia and New Zealand. Um, now, the, 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 the big myth is the lions led by donkeys. And I guess um, we've mentioned Haig. Um, he probably best um, is sort of targeted like that. But um, were the generals um, donkeys? <laughs> I, right, this takes me right the way back to March 1980. No, 1981 it would have been, uh, when I was doing uh, an essay for um, my, my First World War class. Uh, at the University of Leeds, which and um, the question was, was Hague a donkey? And I was completely baffled by that. Uh, and I went away and came back and answered, no, you know, he, 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 he was not a quadruped, he did not, uh, he did not have a tail. Uh, of course, the, um, the expression comes from this idea that, uh, well, various people have been credited for uh, with it, but uh, the idea that a German general said that the, uh, the British were, were lions led by donkeys. In other words, the, the, the soldiers were, were very, very brave, uh, their commanders were, were, were remarkably stupid. Um, some were pretty dim. Not all of them were great, uh, but that was probably the true in any army of any time. And by 1918, a pretty wholesale comb out. Now, again, without wanting to make excuses, I think we need to understand the context. Nobody, but nobody in the British Army in 1914 had any experience of commanding a large army at all. Boer War had been fought 15 years before, and Britain had deployed, sake of argument, equivalent about five divisions, uh, maybe some more. On the Somme in July 1916, Haig has 60-6-0 divisions under his command. No British general before or since has actually commanded such a large force. And that's, that's not including all the the tanks and artillery and all the other stuff that come, comes along with it. So everybody basically was acting up well beyond their level of experience. And to be frank, some people were better at it than others. And one of the things which I think is very striking is the way that the officer, that the senior officer echelons in 1918 are very different even for those in 1916. There has been a turnover. Um, so new people have been promoted. Uh, so for example, uh, Julian Bing, did very well as a commander of the of the Canadian Corps, and so was commanded, appointed to, to command the the Third Army in 1918. Again, he 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 does very well. Um, you've got 
a wholesale level of people being promoted, including some people who were actually civilians before the war, find themselves commanding battalions, even brigades. And so, yeah, um, there are some people better than others, it must be said. Haig, the man at the top, I think, does learn. He doesn't learn in an even fashion, but he learns sufficiently to make a difference. Um, and I suppose the final thing is to say that really the idea of comparing generals really only makes sense when you compare them with their opposite numbers or, or, or in, 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 in allied and, uh, and, and enemy armies. And the French had a massive turnover in their, in their officer corps. So did the Germans. And in the end, actually, I think the British do as well, as well as the French, better than, than, than the Germans. Um, by 1918, you're talking about really quite a hard-bitten, experienced, very skilled and talented group of men commanding the armies. The tragedy has been, up to that point, not everybody has been. And given the small size of the army in 1914, the lack of experience, um, that's going to happen. I remember reading something very striking. I think it was when I was writing Forgotten Victory that there was a, uh, uh, he, he was a, he was a, a high-ranking staff officer rather than a general. But he said that before the war, that uh, even at staff college or in theoretical paper exercises, they didn't even think about commanding the number of troops they had in 1918. Nothing like it. They had to learn as they went along. And learning on the job against a very, very tough enemy, the Imperial German Army, was always going to be a big ask. So it's a very, very bloody apprenticeship. There's no point in making excuses for it. They, mistakes were made. But that's what happens when you suddenly expand your army to such a degree. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to have one more go at having a go at the generals. Um, so, so you've 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 argued, I think, in the uh, I've heard you argue that um, you can't blame the generals for the fact that um, politicians weren't able to to negotiate a peaceful settlement that would work for uh, or certainly work for Britain. Um, that that's not really on the generals. Uh, you can't blame the generals for that. Yeah. And I, I do understand that. But could you not argue that if the generals had um, performed better, they could have placed the politicians in a position whereby they could have um, negotiated a peaceful settlement that would have worked? In theory, yes. In practice, no. Um, simply because, and I think this is the thing which under, underpins everything, what is happening in the First World War is a full-blown revolution in military affairs. And so they're playing catch up to understand, introduce and take advantage of new technology. So in theory, um, yeah, if, if, um, if the army had reached the level of competence that it reaches in 1918, in 1970 or 1916, that would have placed the politicians in a much better position but realistically it was never going to happen i mean one of the best examples of this comes almost from the beginning beginning of trench warfare so the battle of nerve chapelle uh in in march 1915 the british attack and on the first day they almost but not quite break through the german trenches now these are pretty lightly manned trenches by later standards but they actually do 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 do, do quite well and they go away and say okay what did what did we do wrong and they identify the problem was that they didn't succeed in getting their reserves uh, forward early enough to take advantage of the initial gains because because the, the, the assault troops lose very heavily and they're basically not in a position to, 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 to push on. Um, and so therefore they basically do the same thing all over again. Everything's worked really well, artillery bombardments, what have you, up to that point. At the next battle, uh, uh, the Battle of Aubert Ridge, which is fought in May. It's a complete disaster. It's absolute disaster. Why? Because the Germans have also looked what went right, what, re what went wrong, what went uh, 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 wrong for us is actually we, uh, we tried to defend too far forward. We didn't have enough depth. What went right, right for us, machine guns holding them up. So basically they changed their defences next time. And so the British applied all of their, um, their lessons. The Germans were one step ahead. I argue the British do eventually overtake the Germans in learning and applying lessons. So it's not until the spring of 1917. And they 
it's a mixture of new technology um, or new and existing technology. In, in, in short order, what we're talking about is they take three existing bits of kit, which is the quick firing artillery piece, so basically the guns they go into war with in 19, 1914. Um, the, the wireless set, the radio set, which is not voice, it's Morse, and it's a bit clunky, but it, it's around in 1914. And the aeroplane, which of course has only been invented nine years before the, the war breaks out. Nine years? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, um, and so what they do is actually put these three pre-existing bits of kit together. You have a man in an aeroplane with a radio set. He can fly over the enemy trenches and he can see where the enemy's, any, enemy positions are. So you can then radio back to a ground station, which can pass information on to the gunners who can fire really, really accurately. And that, that's, that's a complete game changer. It actually changes, well, um, various historians have argued that this actually changes war. This is, this is the biggest thing which differentiates warfare looking backwards from warfare look, look, looking forwards, even more so than tanks and th th things like this. Um, and the Brits master this in a way that the Germans don't really. And one of the reasons for this is that the British actually uh, have a forward policy with their, with their aircraft, with the Royal Flying Corps, basically carrying the fight to the enemy over enemy trenches. And this is a real advantage. It means that fewer German planes are getting over the British side to see what's going on. This advantage is actually you're fighting in enemy airspace. If you get shot down, you're probably going to crash and, and, and burn on the German side of the lines. It does mean very heavy RFC casualties. But in the scheme of things, it's a result for the British because it means they can deploy these new artillery spotting methods. And this sounds really daft, but actually it's also important. The British are much better bureaucratically in that they, they work out a really good way of making sure this information gets to the right people at the right time so they can make the best use of it in a way the Germans never master. So the British get their nose ahead in both technological terms and in bureaucratic terms. Quite apart from in the bigger scheme of things, Britain and the empire and, and, their, and their allies have much larger resources they can draw upon and, and, and the Royal Navy dominates the seas. That's really important. But all of these things together and in retrospect, in mid-1918, it's difficult to see how the Germans can win and how the Allies can lose. That all comes true in, you know, from July, August 1918 onwards. But it's taken that time to get there. So if only you could have waved a magic wand and shortened this time to get a technical advantage, in reality, it wasn't, wasn't possible. But once they got there, the Allied, and I would say specifically British, by which I mean British Empire, very important Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, South African formations on the Western Front. It's specifically the armies of the British Empire which go ahead and win the First World War. French have, have, have borne the burden up to this point. The Americans play a not in, insignificant role at the very end, but essentially it's the armies of the British Empire which actually bear the burden of victory in 1918. Well, that is that's been absolutely fantastic. I, I have I, I have one more question, which I think I might I might I might get you here on the Go on for it. waste. Go on. Um, it, it's the peace treaty uh, is signed or the armistice is signed um, in, uh, I think, 542 a.m. Have I got that right on the 11th of November? Um, uh, it's It's early in the morning. They, it comes into force early. at 11, I know. Yes, yes, yeah, so it comes into force at 11 a.m. But between the signing at five, five or six in the morning and 11 a.m. when it becomes effective, I think two and a half thousand people are killed in yeah. fighting. Surely that's a waste. Why didn't they just yeah. stay in the, in, in the trenches and sit tight? Uh, well, I couldn't swear to the, the, the absolute numbers, uh, but but and... Again, I'm, this sounds awful. Like I'm just defending them all the time. Um, <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was local decisions. I mean, personally, I would say yes. It, it was a waste. Local decisions were taken. Uh, in the case of the Americans, uh, they wanted to to achieve some particular objectives before the armistice came into place, and well, yeah, almost certainly the wrong decision. Decision that was taken. And interestingly, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Curry commander of the Canadian Corps, who was a, a very, very switched on guy indeed. He, again, I think misguidedly 
ordered the Canadians into action on the morning of uh, 11th of November, and they took some casualties. And after the war, he was pursued, remember the story, I think someone libeled him in the press and he went to court to clear his name and it was all very, very unfortunate. So yeah, I mean, the sensible thing to do would have been to say, okay, chaps, stay where you are. But actually for war or whatever reason at various levels, local commanders took the decision to push ahead. And um, it, it was a tragedy. And in my view, well, 100 plus years on, it seems a waste of time to the people at the time who took those decisions, it no, no doubt seemed to be worth making the effort. Well, Gary, that's been an absolute uh, tour de force. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been so fascinating. Um, the, the, for listeners, um, I, if this hasn't piqued your interest, I don't know what, what will. Uh, Forgotten Victory, I, everyone should read this book, should be, in, um, should, be, should be on the reading list at schools, um, which hopefully it is. Gary Sheffield, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. And let's have another podcast on something else at some point in the future. Oh, wonderful. Well, I absolutely love that chat with Gary. I really do recommend his book, Forgotten Victory. It's available on Kindle and is an absolutely free if you're part of Kindle Unlimited. As I say, do join me for my chat with filmmaker John Sales. But until then, thank you and good night.